Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's just astounding to be chosen this many times out of that huge, huge uh, number of of excellent projects. And so that just means a lot. I mean, really being nominated is kind of everything. Maybe I'd feel differently if I won, (laughs) but being nominated is such a big deal and feels like so special. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we will be joined by Better Call Saul and Nobody star Bob Odenkirk, who is currently nominated for a SAG Award. But first, we have had the big nominations come out, and we now know the 2021 Oscar nominees, and to talk all about the reveal of those lists of actors and films is our film editor, A.A. Dowd. A.A., thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks, Patrick. I'm I, uh, happy to be here. Uh, well, you know, wouldn't want anyone else. Uh, you <laughs> were up bright and early on Monday morning when the nominations were announced by Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Nick Jonas. And, you know, you were quick to turn around some initial thoughts. I, I'd love to kind of get what was going through your head when you heard all these names be uh, be announced. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the Oscars is, and I don't think the the pandemic has changed this much, honestly. Um, There are some things that that are different this year. But the thing about it is that by the time you reach the Oscar nominations, we've seen so many of these precursor awards. You know, uh, we've gone through really a whole season of awards that the attention sort of has coalesced around a certain a certain group of movies. And you will get surprises, but often by Oscar nominations morning, the movies that are going to play into the Oscar race are pretty well known. So I don't know if I if I saw a ton of surprises. There were there were at least a couple in there that I, I was not expecting to be nominated. But these were sort of the movies. A, a lot of the movies nominated were the ones that have been showing up again and again this whole season. And totally fair. I know, you know, one of the things that we've discussed in the past is kind of your favorites and and staff favorites. And we saw some of those get celebrated and some of those not. Uh, let's let's start by discussing some of the ones that you maybe wish had gotten on there. Um, I know you were a big fan of, of First Cow, which topped our list of, of the films of the year last year. Um, but we didn't see that represented here. No, I mean, First Cow is is the type of film that is... I think always going to fall under the Academy's radar just because it's such a, I mean, it, it is an art movie and it, and it, and it's small and it's quiet. I think that there's maybe some alternate reality where this thing, this thing turns out to be a sort of a minor box office sensation or something. And then, and then, it, and then it gets on the Academy's radar. But the fact of the matter is that a 24 sort of smartly guessed that Minari was probably their, their better bet and pushed that harder. I think, um, yeah, I would have loved to have seen First Cow in the conversation. I would have loved to have seen a movie like The Assistant, which came out way back in last February. So 
uh, really an eternity ago at this point in entertainment industry terms. And that, but that movie is hypercritical of Hollywood without any of the glamour of Hollywood. So uh, that was probably a lost cause as well. But do you, did you have any hope because this was a pandemic year when a lot of the big tentpole films that would have been major Oscar contenders were pushed uh, to either this year or be, uh, this this current year or beyond? Yeah, I mean, naively, I did for a little while. <laughs> I, I allowed myself to kind of entertain the thought that this might be the year that the Academy thinks about nominating something that is outside their general sphere of interest. That's something that... Um, a movie that isn't backed by a major studio, that isn't backed by one of the mini majors like Searchlight or Focus, that isn't uh, released by one of the streaming giants, that they might look at films that they would otherwise not have taken a look at. I mean, you have to think that, you know, Academy members get these screeners and, and, and they get these links like everyone else. And that maybe this year, without something like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story in contention, you know, that's moved that's moved back a year, obviously. Without something like that in contention, smaller movies might at least get an opportunity to be seen by the people who might vote for them. But I, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the actual nominees have disabused me of that, uh, of that idealism. I mean, it's not that, it's not that small films aren't nominated, something like Minari or Nomadland. Those are, those are low budget films. It's that they, they, they still have these kind of, they still kind of have these powerful distribution apparatuses at their back, if that makes sense. I mean, it totally does. But let's talk about Nomadland. Uh, that was part of uh, a large representation of female filmmakers this year, which was nice to see. Uh, so tell me what your feelings are in terms of Nomadland and Promising Young Woman getting celebrated. Uh, you know, we had our first year of, of two female Best Director nominees. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a fan of both films, and I think it's it's uh, long overdue that that category could feature two women in it. You know, and 2020 was the year for. I mean, it should have happened probably long before now, but 2020 was a great year for films by women, and so it makes sense that this would be the year that that two of them would break into the highly competitive best director race. Yeah, I'm 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 really happy to see those films represented. No Man Land, especially, which is one of one of my favorites of last year. It's, uh, it's supposedly there are some there there are seventy women this year are nominated for Academy Awards, which is a record, I believe, and uh, they make up a total of seventy six nominations, I think. So yeah, that's that's a big deal, and I think it's uh, I, I I think that's reflective of both both the fact that it was a really strong year for films by women. I think it also reflects, however, that a lot of the larger studio projects are still directed by men. And with most of those not opening in theaters last year and hence not really in contention for Academy Awards, that opened it up for the Academy to consider work by women. Which is not to say, of course, that there aren't women who make studio films at this point, but a lot of the large prestigious projects are still going to men in Hollywood. Well, you know, it wasn't just a a record year for female representation. We also saw a lot of black actors be recognized. In fact, three black actors in one category, in the supporting actor category, which was fantastic to see, as well as uh, two Asian uh, actors in the best actor category with Steven Yeun and Riz Ahmed, uh, which was fantastic. But let's talk about um, the supporting actor category, which is incredibly competitive. Uh, it is. It is. And, and I'm, I'm really curious to see how that's going to shake out, to be honest, because... I think that honestly, Daniel Kaluuya, who plays Fred Hampton and Judas and the Black Messiah, that that is probably the 
that he's probably the front runner in this race. But at the same time, he's competing against his co-star, Lakeith Stanfield. So you have to you have to consider the idea that maybe if these two end up splitting votes, then somebody else wins. I think it's a strong lineup in general. The uh, the other nominees are Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of Chicago 7, a film I was not a fan of, but I, I did quite like his Abby Hoffman in that movie. And uh, Paul Racy in Sound of Metal, an actor who is um, who is so uh, who is so generally unknown before this past year that I think he didn't even have a Wikipedia page until recently. And, you know, that was a little bit of a surprise to me just because I feel like while people celebrated his performance, um, it wasn't he wasn't getting the same sort of attention that somebody like Delroy Lindo, who I know we're a huge fan of at the AV Club, was getting. Um, so his his nomination there did strike me as one that was a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, although I think they were pushing Lindo for best actor for Defy Bloods, which could explain why he's not here. I think had they pushed him for supporting actor, it's possible he would have made the cut and then we'd see, you know, four black actors up for supporting actor this year. You know, it, it's tricky with something like that because I think, you know, we see this every year. There's this um, there's this question of, like, what category do actors belong in? And I do think it's worth noting that both Kaluuya and Stanfield in Judas and the Black Messiah, you could make the case that both of them are leads in that film, and they're both here in the supporting category. And um, this is one case where I think that one of them, at least one of them probably should have been uh, promoted to lead in this case, but... Um, also, there's the, you know, I mean, it's possible that that category was more competitive and we wouldn't see both of them nominated if one of them was going for lead. Yeah, I mean, I think you could have a similar discussion um, just because it, it really comes down to the fact that these are ensemble pieces. Uh, the same with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I think that you see a situation in which uh, you could argue that Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis even could have been in some argument supporting as well. I do think that they both are standouts and certainly have larger roles than most of the others, but that's such an ensemble piece that you could have argued for supporting roles there, but they both got nominated in in the Best Actor and Actress category. So so it really comes down to just where they decide to to put people. And to your point, I think, you know, we would have loved to seen Delroy Lindo nominated in any of the categories, but he would have had a better chance perhaps in supporting. I will say this too, I think that the that Warner Brothers did push Stanfield for lead actor and voters decided to put him in in, in the the supporting category which uh I don't know I sort of understand because you can sort of look at the character that Stanfield plays in the film as a supporting figure in Fred Hampton's life on the other hand I sort of wonder how you look at that film and say that neither of them are the lead that both of them are supporting figures in the film because I think that you know, I mean, I understand that the the the, uh, this, the strategy of sort of looking at a piece that has a large cast and saying that everyone is a supporting player in that film. I think that absolutely makes sense with Trial of the Chicago 7, for example. I think that everyone in that film is giving a supporting performance. But Judas and the Black Messiah is a film that has a large cast, but is led by these two actors, in, in my opinion. I mean, I'm happy they're both nominated. I think they both are very good. I'm very happy about Stanfield being in there. I think that he's... A lot of the attention has has focused on Kaluuya's performance uh, this award season. It's really cool to see Stanfield in there, too, because I think he does supply so much of the urgency of the film. Well, you know, when we discuss all this kind of stuff, it always takes me back to Catherine Zeta-Jones's win for supporting in Chicago when it's like, 
that was those those were two co-lead women right <laughs> we just we just live in a world that couldn't imagine that there's two women leading a film um right. but uh you know what well I'll, I'll give her her oscar and and good for her <laughs> um <laughs> but uh one of the other ones that kind of struck me uh, not as a surprise because we've seen her rack up some awards but certainly i don't think up until very recently would have been considered on a major short list is andra day and you could tell me i'm wrong there but i just didn't feel that there was a lot of buzz about her performance leading up to a nomination uh, until she had her Globes win, followed up by a few other um, critic choice wins. Yeah, I mean, that movie was sort of a, a very late contender this year. I, I don't think anybody had really even seen it until roughly January or so. So it was definitely a late breaker. And this is actually one case in which I think the the adjusted calendar this year, and I'm sure you've discussed this on the podcast before, but this year's calendar is different than normal years. In most years, the Academy will only consider films that came out between, you know, January 1st and December 31st of the year in question. This year with the pandemic, they extended the eligibility calendar so that films that opened as late as the end of February could also compete. And I think The United States versus Billie Holiday is one of the films that has benefited from that, uh, at least Andrew Day's performance. The other thing is that most years, most years, the Academy has voted by the time the Golden Globes happen, by the time the ceremony happens. This year, because of the extended window, something happened where basically uh, Academy voters didn't even have their ballots when the Golden Globes announced their winners by the night of the ceremony. So in a very real way, Day's win at the Golden Globes may actually have may actually have pushed voters to to watch the film and may have actually encouraged them to consider her a contender in a way that they might not have before that win happened. I mean, it's yeah, it's fascinating how the timing has affected so many of these of these nominations and who we would have seen here otherwise. It, it's a it's a fantastic alternate universe sliding doors situation. Um, yeah. And I'm, but I'm happy that we we're able to, as you to your point earlier, that we we're able to celebrate some quieter films that would have gotten lost in the noise otherwise. But films that were not lost in the noise were clearly Nomadland and Mank, which we haven't really discussed a lot. Mank is the type of film that I think we expected to get nominated. It, it covers Hollywood. It glorifies Hollywood while also, you know, kind of poking at Hollywood a little bit, which is something that the Academy loves to award. But at the same time, we've seen it nominated at other award shows, but it's not really risen to a a film that's had a lot of momentum necessarily. It gets the nominations, but maybe not a ton of wins. Whereas Nomadland is is you know continuing to sweep. We've seen Promising Young Woman. We've seen other films kind of have the more of the momentum. But Mank ended up with the most nominations, which is ten. Uh, what are your feelings there, and how that happened? Well, so uh, honestly, I think that if Mank was better, it, it this race would be over. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't get the sense that anybody has a ton of enthusiasm for Mank. I mean, I guess we do as a site. It made our list for the top twenty five of the year. Uh, little behind the curtain action it did not make my list it, <laughs> uh, it did not uh, make my list either um i will say but uh you know what people that's that is why we let a diverse uh group of voices that's be a right. part of the conversation uh, so i'm not a big fan of the film uh, and and i get the feeling that there is a maybe slightly less enthusiasm than you would expect for a david fincher film about classic hollywood and i think that its failings whether 
however however they're perceived and and uh, whether you feel their failings or not i think the film's reception which has been mostly positive but not rapturous i think has affected its status as a film that is very much in the conversation but is not being seen as a front runner and i also i mean if i if i want to be more cynical about it i mean i think that Mank is the kind of movie that was going to get Oscar nominations. Almost the fact that it's it wasn't a, a total disaster. Sort of, I mean, if you have David Fincher sitting at, at at the the helm of an expensive film about classic Hollywood, it is going to do well in at very least in the technical categories. So people filling out their ballots might just say, "Well, production design." I don't know. There's a lot of Hollywood sets in the film. We go to a we go to a glamorous manner. Sure, why not make? You know, I just don't see it having the 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 kind of support that it would need to win Best Picture. It, it, whereas with Nomadland, I'm also s- skeptical of that film winning as well because um, the thing about it is that Nomadland is a quiet, poetic film about uh, about Americans living on the fringe of mainstream culture and um it just it, it does not scream an awards movie to me in, in a lot of respects i think it just it, it it operates much much more elliptically than a lot of what we end up seeing when these kind of awards i wouldn't describe it as particularly middle brow honestly and you know it, it has been the critical favorite it, it was definitely the critical favorite of last year but often the academy how the academy votes and how critics vote uh those don't often align you know, I mean, like something getting like the best reviews of the year can guarantee something a best picture nomination or guarantee it as uh, being part of the conversation, but it can't necessarily guarantee it a win. See, for example, sideways. Totally. Well, you know, and that's why it's important to have critical voices, but also understand the history of of academy voting, which is something that you have a a good grasp of, which is why people should continue to tune into if you're not already listening to film club where a.a dowd and katie rife will continue to discuss the categories much more in depth than we've done here today so a little plug uh for our other podcast uh, that you host dowd but i appreciate you coming here on push the envelope this week to give us a quick overview we will of course be continuing to discuss the academy awards and have nominees as guests uh but you certainly want to check out film club which comes out every friday via the av club Thank you for being here this week, Dowd. It's been a pleasure to get to talk to you about this, and I'm sure we will continue these conversations over Slack and in staff meetings over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Of course. But you listeners don't go anywhere just yet, because as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to be hearing from Nobody star Bob Odenkirk. Armar Eakin recently sat down with the SAG-nominated actor of Better Call Saul, and let's take a little listen to that conversation. I guess I'll start by saying, you know, Better Call Saul's sixth season was starting to shoot pre-COVID, but then was basically shut down for like a year. Well, that's not what happened. We were oh, supposed sorry. to start shooting in September. Oh, I read February 2020. So, okay. No, they, they always, you know, our show has a very unique production schedule that is rare for, for reasons of how much it costs. <laughs> um, the writers want to be able to write the entire season before they shoot a single frame. Mm-hmm. Then they want to shoot the entire season and edit the entire season before it goes on the air. Wow. Even. So they don't always meet those markers. So very often they've mapped out the first, the 10 episodes, but in this case, 13, very often they've mapped them out and say written four of them completely. 
and then they have to start shooting. Mm-hmm. So if we had started in September, they would have probably had five of them written, but the whole season mapped out. Mm-hmm. But then John Banks and I got on the phone with Sony, you know, COVID protocol people. They gave us a big, you know, lecture and, and they were great. They were like, look, we want you to know what we're going to do. We think it's going to be safe. Here's what we're going to do. And Banks and I both said, um, doesn't feel great. John Banks is 74. Mm-hmm. We didn't feel it was safe yet. You know, John has gotten the vaccine, which is great. And I'm hoping some of the other cast members have it too. And uh, we will go back with the protocols next week. It changed my question a little, but like, how do you think having sort of the extra time? Yeah, they still had extra time and it means they got to finish writing the season. It always helps because if you write something in episode 10 and you want it to matter in episode two, that you, you know, you discover something matters in a later episode and you want to plant that little key or, you know, foreshadowing which, of course, Breaking Bad was so good at, which was also done this way, same production schedule, you need that time. You need to have written episode 10 so you know that in the third act, this one relationship or this one object or this one point of view can be put into episode two. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons they want to edit the entire thing. It's because you get to editing and you learn things. And then you want to change something in an earlier episode. I mean, I had read something you said recently, though, that you still are not like entirely sure how it's going to play out. And, you know, I don't know. I haven't read it. I could read it. I'm a, I'm a producer. I could say, give me the scripts. They offer them to me. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to know. Yeah. In some sense, that's like you're, you're Jimmy or you're Gene. Yeah. Like you're reacting mm-hmm. to the situations that are happening. That's right. How well do you, I mean, you've played jimmy mcgill slash salgaman for a while now like how well do you think you know that character like do you feel like you have background i think i know him really really well mm-hmm. and uh to the point where to me the character i'm most curious about in our show is uh ray seahorn's character kim wexler not jimmy mm-hmm. and i've lo- and it's been fun getting to know jimmy and i hope the audience has liked it too and that they found him a uh, you know, an intriguing character. I do think we don't know who Gene Takovic is. We don't know what the experience of Breaking Bad mm-hmm. did to him and the experience of being in hiding. So those two experiences, I imagine that, you know, with Breaking Bad, he, he was really thinking he had it made with Walter White, you know, as a client. And that actually doomed his whole enterprise. So I don't know what those two experiences may have done to him. And we'll get to find out. Yeah, like we sort of know where Jimmy's story is going. Like we don't know how it's going to get there. But Kim, we don't know what's going to happen. Like is she going to... We don't know what... I'm sorry, Meredith, step on you. We don't know what's going to happen. And we don't know who she is. Who is this person? Right? Yeah. Is she going to become collateral damage? Is she going to flip? Is she going to, you know... we don't. And then with Gene... Also, when you were just talking about being in hiding, there was a part of me that's like, also, what is doing that job? And like, like Jimmy has never been a person that could just hold down like 40 hours a week of a mall management Cinnabon job. Like what is doing, not just hiding, but like what is being that person done to you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the guy's having a nervous breakdown. That's what that whole collapse was. And 
his body is like rejecting this situation now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I don't know what happens to him. I don't know if he comes out somehow better or just implodes. You've also said recently that Jim McGill is like one bad move away from flipping the switch and turning into Saul Goodman. Is Kim the only thing holding him back or is it like his own morality or like, what do you think it is there that's keeping him from pushing through? It's Kim. It's Kim. Yeah. He's got something in his life that is worth keeping one foot in the straight world. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like angel devil. He's like still listening. He's got got Kim keeping him. Yeah. One foot in the straight world. And, and, but not much, just a, just a toe. (laughs) He's about to, he's ready to go. Yeah. I mean, he also went through some really awful stuff this past season. And yes. And I think sort of in the past that Jimmy sort of had this hubris of thinking maybe he was smarter than these other people or, um, that he could that he could talk himself out of any situation. I think maybe last season is where he realized he's a little fucked. There's some kind of journey he goes on in this season where he either compartmentalizes or somehow re-energizes his Saul Goodman side with this, you know, PTSD uh, that he's kind of living with from this adventure in the desert that went off the rails very quickly, and that. Anybody else would stop, would say, maybe I should rethink my approach to life and the law and who I am in the world. And uh, I guess he doesn't. I don't know what happens next. Where he is right now is the end of season five is a guy who's trying to find his feet again. Mm -hmm. He's scared and he's wobbly. Yeah. And he doesn't have his brother there anymore to sort of back him up like his only connection to the real world i guess is is kim kim's it kim's the whole thing and she seems to be losing her marbles a little (laughs) well that's like that's a lot of pressure to put on one person do you know what i mean to be in a relationship where like you guys are the only thing sort of like holding each other up yeah they're too into each other and too like you know in a real relationship you you really have to just keep you have to take responsibility for yourself it's one of the things you learn Sometimes it takes a couple of years into your marriage (laughs) where you realize, oh, my life is still my own. I still need to own it and live it and learn from it. And I think these two are a little too up each other's asses. They're just hiding away together a little too Mm -hmm. much. Um, Better Call Saul was notably on Obama's list of the best shows of 2020. What do you hope the president is getting from the show? And is it weird to be like, oh, the the leader of the free world, the former leader of the free world is watching, is watching me. <laughs> yeah, it's a tribute to the writing of the show. Mm-hmm. He's a smart guy who likes likes peeling back the layers of the onion <laughs> on on everything, on sure. policy, on on human behavior, on life on Earth. And so our show is a show with a lot of layers to it and uh and so i think he appreciates the uh parsing of human drives and emotions that peter gould and an amazing group of writers do with our show i would guess that's what he's liking also it's kind of funny i mean saul is kind of a joke and uh 
Yeah. Hopefully you have yeah. empathize with them, but you can laugh at them. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, you have been nominated for an Emmy for four of the series five seasons, and then you're up for a SAG award this spring. Like, how does that recognition affect Don't you? The Globes. <laughs> and the Globes, I'm sorry. Don't forget. <laughs> Don't forget. Critics' choice. Critics' choice. I vote on those. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of other things. You know, you're always year-end lists, whatever. How does that sort of stuff, like, do you, you know, do you keep track of that stuff in your mind? Are you happy to have, you know, do you like wearing the well, suits? <laughs> it's super thrilling. Uh, do I like wearing the suits? Uh <laughs> Oh man, my feelings about that have wavered over the years. I I would never wear a suit willingly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as you go through it, it's an honor to be picked out of the grand massive array of TV and movies and amazingly good TV. Just stunningly great. Smart, well-written, well-played, beautifully shot. It's just astounding to be chosen this many times out of that huge, huge uh, number of, of excellent projects. And so that just means a lot. I mean, really being nominated is kind of everything. Maybe I'd feel differently if I won. <laughs> but being nominated is such a big deal and feels like so special that I think dressing up a little bit, you know, I, I think award shows are, you know, the social aspect of showbiz, which when you start and you're young, you can sort of look at with a snide eye, you know, a kind of a feeling of like, it's a bunch of rich people patting each other on the back. Look, it is not all of them are rich. <laughs> um, it's good to tell people about shows. You know, I love Pen15. Now, how do you get people to know about Pen15? You will you mm -hmm. give it awards. You'd say the name. You put it out there. Otherwise, how is a little show like that going to be found? Mm -hmm. You want to find it 10 years from now after it's long over and they didn't get to do many seasons because not enough people watched, you know, or undone this show that I'm on. You know, these these good, pure, in the I think Better Call Saul belongs in the category. They need to have the attention brought to them. You know, Better Call Saul is a bit of a challenge to watch. The, the, the journey is incremental. And you have to watch with sensitivity. You have to watch kind of closely. You can watch a scene. If you don't watch it closely, you might think not much happened. But if you watch it closely, you can see... Oh, I see what happened there. There was a transfer of status. There was a suspicion that grew. And so giving awards to these things, it makes people pick them out of the massive lineup of, of options. And that's a good thing. And so I'm willing to dress up. Uh, also, I'm ugly. So dressing up is a good thing if you're going to be in front of a camera. You know, so... I don't know. I just think of it as a social event. And I like the people in this business. I like, you know, the other night I was on the Globes and there was Bateman and Matthew Reese. I know both those guys and I love them. They're great guys. And I don't get to see them enough. I would love to hang out with them once every five months. <laughs> but once a year on TV is great. No, I, it really is. I'm, I'm thrilled and honored to be picked out. 
And I love being a part of the social side of the business. And I'm not even going to qualify that by saying up to a point. I'm just going to say I love being a part of that stuff. And I think as a younger person, I was very, um, I've become less jaded. <laughs> well, you mentioned Pen15 and, and shows that sort of need a little needed a little help or need sort of someone to help them happen. And that sort of reminded me that you started your own production company, Cal Gold Pictures, and you are working on a deal with Sony, like you're working with Sony. And I'm sort of wondering, like, what do you sort of hope to develop there? Like, are they all Bob Odenkirk's? Are you doing like, I know you've worked on Birthday Boys and Tim and Eric and stuff like that in the past. Like, are you hoping to develop projects for other people? Like, what do you hope comes out of that? There's projects for me, but there's lots of projects for other people. Essentially, what happened was, you know, I I always write when I'm not when I'm not acting, I'm writing. It's interesting because there's stuff that you've written, like being on SNL. Like there's not names on every sketch, and the, when the credits roll at the end or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So there's stuff that you've written that people may not realize that you've written, but you know that you've written it, or you can put it on your reel or whatever. There's always that too. <laughs> yes. But writing is writing feels like more like woodworking. It's like a thing you do, and then you can point to it. Um, well, this is tangentially related to acting and to, to writing. Um, you are an integral part of one of my all-time favorite scenes in comedy, which is the backstage at the Aerosmith show scene in Wayne's World 2, you and Robert Spiegel, mm-hmm. which I just think is is a very funny scene. Like, having lived in Chicago, it all rings very true. I assume that came from your work at SNL. And I know that Mike Myers liked me as a performer. He was encouraging to me, you know, we're about the same age, but I was kind of years behind him in stage time. Um, But he came to see my one man show in New York when I was a writer at Saturday night live. And I did the uh, West bank cafe. I did the theater there for a weekend and Mike came down, which was really nice of him and very supportive. And he loved, uh, of course, everybody loves Smigel because he's the best writer that ever worked at Saturday Night Live. And they gave us, uh, he gave us those parts to be a part of it. And I also helped Dana. I don't know how much I helped Dana with his work in Wayne's World. He claims I helped him. I listened to him tell me his ideas and probably told him they were great. (laughs) But he gave me a Martin guitar as a thank you. Now, I don't know why he did. It was way more than I deserve for being, uh, for being basically uh, uh, cheering him on. That's all I did. <laughs> well, I must have liked you too, because you ended up working with the show. You ended up working on the Anacari show and all of yeah. that. You know, you've had some some projects that have failed, like any actor, really? any working actor, any working writer. Is there one that's really stuck with you and that you'd like sort of a second shot at? <laughs> there are many. Many that stuck with me and that I wish I could have a second shot at. First of all, I wish I could reshoot The Brother Solomon mm-hmm. as, an, as an indie movie done on location only, no sets, and played as real as possible. Just don't give it any artifice to its presentation. Um, I wonder what that would look like. I'm not sure it would be hugely winning, but... It, I think it might be really interesting and could be great. Uh, there's a show I did for HBO called The Near Future, which was really good. Only I 
I was just unsteady because I was working in sci-fi and it just threw me as far as my confidence goes, but it was fucking good. And it was with Breckenmeyer and uh, Kate Town and it was just solid. It, it, there's no way that wasn't good. It's just I couldn't come through for it as a creator and fight for it the way I should have because I was just not sure. I was really in unknown territory and I wish I'd gotten a pro to work with me and help me know I was on solid ground because I think I was on solid ground. Um, there was also a show called Highway to Oblivion for Comedy Central that was so fucking funny. Now that has a fatal flaw in it. Everything about it was great. It was written with Howard Kramer and Chip Pope who did Austin stories. Mm-hmm. And, it, and Howard was the star of it. But the real fatal flaw was we wrote the worst female protagonist you've ever read. It was utterly shameful what we wrote and asked this wonderful actress to do. And she could have done a wonderful job with a well-rounded character. And, and by all rights, that character should have been a voice of reason. And why we wrote this stupid, horrible, dumb, it's just shitty and not funny. But everything else about that show was genius. It was, you remember the E! True Hollywood story? Mm-hmm, of course. So it was a TV comedy that was made like that. It was made with documents, artifacts, found footage, telling the story of this idiot who came to Hollywood to leech off of celebrities. Ingratiating, pushy guy, played by Howard so well, who wants to get in their lives and creates all kinds of mayhem in their lives. It was very silly. And was just great until we meet the female protagonist. Wait, I got one more for you. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, it was where I played a, um, a movie studio magnate who lives and works in North Hollywood and makes really shitty ripoff B movies for the foreign market. It, it was really funny. The first film he made for the African market was called Harry Potter and the Lost LeBaron. <laughs> and, and Potter was spelled with two Ds. <laughs> it's a funny concept. All, all of these are still good ideas. Okay, well, maybe I'll go <laughs> back to some of them. I always wonder who has the rights to them. That's the problem. <laughs> That's always the weird issue where it's like, who, who knows? Yeah, I mean, does Comedy Central own that highway to oblivion? They probably do, and so I can't do it again. But anyway... Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope, but we will be back next Thursday with an all-new episode with more awards discussion and celebrity interviews. Until then, please remember to subscribe and like and comment wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find me on social media at Patrick Gomez LA. Until next week, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.